Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. what I tell you to do. Listen to me. Daddy, come here. Hey, right here, right now. You're making me mad. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. I wanna play airplane. I wanna play airplane. I wanna play airplane. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to another episode of Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called Tesori Hour, covering all five Broadway musicals of Miss Janine Tesori. And it's the last episode. Woo! I am your host, Matt Koblick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a writer, composer. You know her work from Pregnancy Pact or The Loneliest Girl in the World. Please welcome Miss Julia Meinwald. Hi, Julia. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. I just moved four days ago, so I'm sort of in a state of disarray. You moved four days ago? Yeah. Well, that's actually perfect for the show we're talking about because you're moving into a new home. You're packing, unpacking. You're sorting through your life and and, uh, what's we're looking for? Uh, Compartmentalizing everything. So you're really in the right mind frame for today. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I think what most of our listeners want to know is, Julia, what in the world made you say yes to come on this podcast today? What was it about me that made you go, him? I want to talk with him. Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> I do. <laughs> you know, obviously you advertise as being foul which seems like a fantastic thing to associate with. No, I love chatting about musical theater and I love Janine Story work. I love Fun Home. So I'm excited to get into it. That's right. What? So the musical we are talking about today is... Fun home. I'm sorry, I blew the I blew the little seed for anyone who didn't read this episode title. No, no, you did it. You did it just perfectly. You um brought it up naturally in conversation, and then I volleyed it back up. It's all good. We're, it's so natural. It's organic. It's wonderful. Um, so Julia, two questions for you. One, 
when were you made aware of Janine Tesori as a composer? And then when, what is your history with Fun Home? So I think the first Janine Tesori show I saw was Caroline or Change, which I saw on Broadway originally, which was amazing. Hallelujah. And I came into that, you know, as a big Tony Kushner fan, because, you know, when I was little, I was, well, and, and continuing to now when I am old, I was obsessed with Angels in America and most of the Tony Kushner shows. So I was a quick convert to Janine Tesori fan. And Fun Home, I think I saw for the first time at the public. I was one of the last in my friend group to see it. I feel like I saw it towards the end of it run at the public with my wonderful writing partner, Gordon, who was seeing it for like probably the third or fourth time when he took me to see it. And, and then, then yeah. did you see it when it uh, moved to Broadway? Yes, I saw it on the Broadway mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful production of it at Weston Playhouse. Um, Was Caitlin Kinnan in that production? Yeah, yeah. Ah, Caitlin Kinnan, <laughs> who was in Pregnancy Pact, yes? Oh my gosh, you're good. Yeah, exactly. Well, Caitlin has been on the podcast, she, I mean, years ago, but for back when this was, you know, much more of a talk about whatever show and it was, and I had a co-host, John Miscavige, uh, Caitlin was on then. And I remember she brought up Fun Home and we were, and we were like, oh, you'd be good in that. Um, so <laughs> she was. Uh, oh, I'm sure. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. So first of all, Julia, you've already established yourself as someone with phenomenal taste, uh, loving Tony Kushner at a young age, getting into Carolina Change when it was first on Broadway. I mean, you're saying all the right things. Um, I mean, so at this point, this will be the last episode of the Tesori series as Fun Home is the last Tesori musical to premiere on Broadway. Uh, although probably sometime this season, that won't be true anymore. I'm not going to confirm or deny anything. I have just heard rumblings about some things in regards to one of her shows. Uh, Plus I've had a guest who has made it clear that he wants to talk about another one of her shows that hasn't actually made it to Broadway yet. So we will do a bonus episode of that later this year, but for all intents and purposes, this is the last episode of Janine Tesori, uh, but it's one of the first episodes I'm actually recording. (laughs) So much like fun home uh, time is irrelevant. It is a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. And so I will have already discussed Carolina Change and the brilliance that is that show. Uh, Full disclosure, this is the show that I have seen the most times on Broadway. Uh, I did see it at the public. Well, I did see it at the public. I saw it once. Uh, I saw it right before it opened. I actually saw the same performance that Ben Brantley saw. So I saw Mm -hmm. Alexandra Sosha. I'm one of the few. Mm. And then uh, I saw it six times on Broadway, which I don't normally do. Uh, Usually I'll see a show if I really like it twice, maybe three times. I saw Violet three times, which at this point everyone will have known. But the only times I see shows more than twice are like if I have a friend who goes into the show or for various reasons. Like I saw My Fair Lady four times because one of my best friends made her debut towards the end of the run. Yeah, it was, it was a good show to see four times. Uh, Fun Home, I legit just like kept going back because I was like, I don't know if I'm going to see a musical again that affects me this much, but also I think this highly of, where it's like the writing, the performances, the design, the staging, everything I just thought was so fantastic that yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like, just see it as many times as I can. I don't know what, it's, it's fleeting. Like it's not going to last forever. So 
see it as many times as I can. And then I did. And uh, I cherish all six times I saw it on Broadway. It is pretty encouraging that it did as well as it did. I mean, I agree. Like I was, you know, reading up on the Wikipedia page and I read, you know, like they've recouped their money, you know, they ran for 500 something performances that like mm. a show this odd, you know, in this non cookie cutter in so many ways mm -hmm. was as successful as it was. Absolutely. Making you feel good about the industry. Yeah. And I remember, so I, I did some research on, this episode as I am want to do. And I sent you some links and whatnot, yeah. which first of all, you're a trooper. If you went through any of those things, I send all of my, uh, to my listeners, I send all of my guests, what I call a media package, which is basically consisting of like 10,000 YouTube, Wikipedia, and like other links, I'm just, which is, you know, just to give people enough information that they can dabble on whatever links they want. But um, I, I go through the exact same links that I send you. It's not like I just find something and I paste it. Like I've watched, I've watched and I've listened and I've read all the same things that I send my guests. When I was in grad school, I went to grad school for musical theater writing at NYU and my advisor there, I remember, gave me a piece of, I don't know if it was feedback or once, but he, the thing he said to me was like, I know that like whenever we give you an assignment, you are going to do like exactly what was assigned and you know like you won't necessarily go overboard but you won't shark you i'm a follower of instructions and intimations so i did read through what you sent <laughs> perfect thank you um yeah no it's uh I, I went through all that as well and then i went through some of the message boards at the time both when fun home was at the public and then when it was announced that it was coming to broadway and all this stuff and i mean well everyone who had seen it was so excited minus a few you know stupid people everyone was like i don't know if this is going to succeed do they have any chance of making money they're going into the circle in the square like this is going up against some big heavy hitters this season and not only did it run for over a year and make its money back but it won five tony awards and got like the best yeah. reviews of the season and was able to kind of make a mark that same year when hamilton had been uh, premiered at the public just a few months prior and like really kind of took up most of the headlines yeah. yeah so like the way that it worked that so you know let's, let's get into it yeah so like the show premiered at the public uh in i believe october of 2013 after you know being in development for a number of years it's obviously based on the graphic memoir fun home by Alison Bechtel, who is famous for being a lesbian cartoonist. If you ever watch Rick and Morty, Morty says, why is lesbian part of her job description? It's, it's, I, I love that. Like it's part of her title, but also it's like, she's also just, she's a cartoonist, but lesbian is very much part of her identity. It's part of sort of what she's made her mark. But uh, Lisa Crone, actress and playwright, uh, thought it would make a really great musical and sort of worked on it for a year by herself. And then came to Janine Tesori. And as is the case with pretty much every musical we've covered here, minus Fun Home, uh, Janine gets approached every time. And she's always like, I don't know how you're going to turn this into a musical. And that's why I kind of want to do it. And <laughs> that's what I love about her. She's like, I don't know. Let's give it a shot. Um, yeah. She's like, I can't imagine how this is going to sing. And what a wonderful challenge that is. And I'm like, Janine, you goddess, I bow down to you. So they, they like worked on it for a long time. They did about five years of development at the Ojai Playwrights Conference and then at Sundance Institute's Theater Lab. And then they did another lab at the public. Um, they did multiple concerts. Weirdly, they did a they did a presentation with Maggie Gyllenhaal and David Hyde Pierce. And I'm like, where is that footage? I want that footage. 
I was um, curious. Also, I was trying to think of what year, and I was like, literally, what part was was Maggie Gyllenhaal a medium Allison or regular Allison? A part of me thinks that she was adult Allison, but Beth Malone was a part of the show f- pretty early on, unless. Yeah, because they did a staged reading in 2011 with uh, Judy Kuhn, with Kuhnsey, and Beth Malone. And maybe just because, like, this was mostly just, like, a presentation. It wasn't anything, like, developmental. Maggie Mm -hmm. was there to play adult Allison. Yeah, because there's no way she was medium Allison. Unless she was, like, I don't know, Joan or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, they they did their uh, major production at the public at the Newman September of 2013 it kept extending and extending and everyone thought it was going to transfer that season and then it didn't and everyone's like oh well they lost their moment they lost the momentum they lost the opportunity but then it was announced I think in summer of 2014 that they were coming to Broadway in March at the Circle in the Square and everyone's like oh that's so far away because then there were also rumors like maybe they were going to go to Arena in DC and doing like an out of town tryout, sort of like how Next Normal did off Broadway, then went out of town, then came back to Broadway. Everyone's like, oh, it'll they'll build a momentum that way. They'll work on the show that way. And like, nope, we just took a year off and we're coming back to Broadway. And I was listening to uh an interview with I think it was Lisa Crone that said part of the reason why they waited so long was because they always wanted the circle in the square theater. The director, Sam Gold, always wanted it to be in the round. And if uh, at the public, it was on that turntable. And it was like the closest you could get to it being in the round was doing that turntable. And they're like, it was very important to him to be in the round. We really wanted circle in the square. And we basically just had to wait till it was available. Um, what do you think about that? Because I have to admit, I feel like I haven't you know, read or talked to anyone about this really, but when I think of the public presentation, I still do think of it very much as like proscenium, which yeah. I thought was so cool the way they were suggesting like the the comic cartoon panels. I thought that was like a really cool look. Mm-hmm. And I actually sort of missed that when it went into the round. What do yeah. you think? Um, so I have a friend who also, there was another thing from it being at the Newman in the proscenium that he missed, which was the reveal of the house when they come back at the end of the show, which was very sort of like David Cromer's Our Town, you know, they pull back the curtain and there's the bacon frying and all that stuff. And I totally get that. Like that image was lost in the round and you don't really get the sense of the cartoon panels like you did at the Newman, but I still preferred it on Broadway. First of all, they made one change uh, material wise that like, even though it's only small, it made such an impact. We'll talk about it in a second. But what I thought that the, the two things that worked for me in the round were it felt much more like a memory piece, you know, characters flowing in and out, furniture going up and down into the floor. Whereas at the Newman, because it was so presentational in the, in the cartoon uh, squares, it felt a little more at a distance. And I loved it at the public. I really did love it at the public. But in the, in the circle in the square, you were really in it. And that made it much more effective for me and very much felt more fluid, which I thought was effective. And then on top of that, I thought the way that it was staged in the round, Beth Malone really became the lead of the show. Whereas at the Newman, she had to kind of always be on the side at her crime station. Yeah. Yeah. She felt much more like a spectator. Whereas at the Circle and Square, she was, she was in it. And it made the whole thing just sort of congeal in a way that you didn't realize it needed to. Because like, again, at the Newman, it was so fantastic. I saw it, I was like, Great, transferred immediately. This is fantastic. And then at Circle and Square, a lot of people were like, in the round, like, how's that going to work? And 
blah, blah, blah. And then if you read the reviews from like the first couple of previews, everyone was like, I can't believe it, but it's better. Like who knew this could be better, but I know what you mean. It's, you, it's sort of, you know, you have to kind of kill your darlings in order to achieve something even greater, you know? Um, yeah. But I think they went back to that design for the tour because obviously they couldn't do in the round right, right. tour. So they went back to sort of the Newman staging for that. Huh. I yeah. never thought about, yeah, how the staging would have to change on tour. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm only going off of what I read and what I saw, but the photos definitely looked like the Newman design, the Newman staging. They had the turntable and everything. So, yeah. I, I wonder if, I mean, something that feels so like, in a way, foundational to like how you're telling the story. I wonder if that changes anything in the performances or the direction as you oh. go between those types of staging. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, well, so this first, okay. So we, we honestly just kind of dived right in. And for anyone who doesn't know this show, Tap Titty, but Julia, what is Fun Home about? Oh boy, um, I feel like you know the, the perfect synopsis is already out there and I'm not gonna be able to quote it or even paraphrase it, but Fun Home is about a family, about a woman who we see at three different ages, thinking back on and processing her childhood and her parents and she has a father. It's told at the time when she's 43 years old, the age that her father was when he killed himself. And so she's grappling with these questions of in what ways am I similar to and different than my father? And the ways that they're similar is that they are both attracted to people of the same sex and they both have this sort of strong artistic penchant which manifests differently in them. Hmm. That was already so long. Do your synopsis. Oh, geez. So Fun Home is a memory piece about Alison Bechtel. So the, the graphic memoir is Alison Bechtel, as you said, grappling with her childhood and her and her relationship to her parents, her father in particular, who she found out was a closeted homosexual the same time that she came out as a lesbian in college. And three or four months after she came out, her father killed himself. And the book is very much answering those questions. Whereas the musical, it's that same situation while also Allison herself is writing the memoir. So she's it's her going through her memories as she's writing it and, you know, reliving all of that trauma and all of those happy memories and confusing memories. And yeah, coming to terms with the love, the anger, the fear and the hate that she had with her father, um, who was a very complicated, brilliant, but oftentimes awful man. Yeah. I think we both gave very long synopses, but you know what? With something like this, you can't just say, oh, it's about a woman who writes a book. Uh, there are a lot of other things. Although you could use what Allison says at the end of Welcome to Our House on Maple Avenue, which is, you know, the big joke and twist reveal. She says of her father. Caption, my dad and I both grew up in the same small Pennsylvania town and he was gay and I was gay and he killed himself. And I became a lesbian cartoonist. That is, that is pretty apt. We should have just, yes, she, she did it for us. She did it for us. Lisa Crone wrote it succinctly, and <laughs> we don't need to stray much further from the path. Um, so 
I'm assuming, oh, and, and it's called Fun Home for, for a myriad of reasons. The primary one is that uh, one of the, the big family business was that they owned a funeral home that Bruce worked at a lot, um, mostly as a mortician. And they called it Fun Home for short. But then on top of that, it wasn't a very fun home. And then on top of all of that, her father also, uh, his big sort of passion in life was uh, renovating and maintaining their gothic uh, mansion of a house, you know, basically bought it when it was falling apart and over the years restored it to its or former glory. Mind you, did not update it in any way, like did not have any modern design designs put in other than like TVs and electric lighting, like fully put up like the wallpaper from like 1880 and like made sure that everything looked as close to the original as it could. And it was very impressive, but it was also kind of like a museum. And so it was, you know, the house was his pride and glory more than his own family. So it's the home itself, the fun home, the funeral parlor, the environment of the house not being fun. It's many, many reasons. Um, what is your favorite song in this show, Julia, as a composer? Gosh, I mean, I really like Telephone Wire. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I fell out of the ground. I love Telephone Wire. I love all the score, but still. Yeah. I really like the Ring of Keys song. Mm-hmm. And I really like changing my major to Joan. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the big three. I would say number four would be Days and Days. Uh, yeah, that one, I feel like it's not my skip track, but that one doesn't hit me in the same way as those other three at all. Are you not a Kunzi fan? I'm not. I mean, I'm certainly not an anti fan, but I haven't dived into her rabbit hole yet. Well, Juliet. After this episode, I have more homework for you because <laughs> Judy Kuhn might be the most perfect voice to ever grace Broadway. My listeners are tired of hearing me talk about her, but like, I can't think of anyone else who can sing Florence and Chess, Amalia and She Loves Me, Cosette and Les Mis and Rags, like all, all those things. She's just so great. I love her very much. I remember when Fun Home came on Broadway, I was at Actors' Equity for an audition and two people were behind me in line. And I think I'd seen the show with three times by this point. And it was some dude, some boy, man. He was telling a friend like, oh yeah, I saw Fun Home yesterday. Just like, oh, how did you like it? He goes, well, I guess I couldn't relate because, you know, my dad's not gay. And I'm like, if, <laughs> I'm like, first of all, if everything has to line up so exactly that that's the only thing that gives you like emotions, it's called empathy, you pompous beta male motherfucker. Like, put yourself in someone else's shoes and feel the emotions through that. Like that's all it, that's all you need. Ugh, I hate people. <sighs> yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm all over the place because I truly don't know how to approach this show because I adore it so much. I truly believe it is the best musical of the 21st century over Hamilton. Uh, it was tough to decide between this and Carolina change, which I think is just such a masterpiece, but I think fun home is a little, uh, easier to process which I think actually adds to its genius, if that makes sense. Easier to process in terms of like emotionally accessible or in terms of, yeah, well, so I mean, it literally is short. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a sensible hundred minutes intermissionless too. We love that. We love a movie version of a show, but <laughs> I think because so, so you're more, you are more of a writer than I am, especially in the musical theater world. And you know a lot of people who are sort of, you know, up and coming and how people approach their works and you know how you approach your work. But as someone who has acted, who has written, who, has, who sees a lot of shows, I find sometimes some of the most promising writers 
who like are just really intelligent and, and creative almost have a bit of a resentment towards their audiences. Like, like, like they're resentful that they have, that they have to show this work for people who they think probably won't understand it. So there's a bit of an anger there uh, without throwing him too much under the bus. Cause I do like him a great deal. I've talked about his wild party before, but like Michael John Lacusa, when I saw first daughter suite at the public, I was like, it feels kind of like you're really mad that we're all here seeing this right now. Like you are so mad that you, that you have to show us this, that you would like, if you had your way, this would stay in the rehearsal room forever. And I kind of get that in a way, like you, some, you're so protective of your stuff and you get mad when like basic people don't understand it and therefore dismiss it. But I feel like sometimes with writers like that, with who are just so brilliant, sometimes they get a little angry and fun home. I feel like it could have been a show where, because Lisa Cronin and Janine DeSorio are such mm. brilliant women, you know, covering a book of another brilliant woman with a very tricky subject matter it could have been too esoteric it could have been too highbrow it could have been too odd but I thought they did a really wonderful job of bringing the audience in not only emotionally but allowing audiences to let their guard down um one of the main things being come to the fun home which is like such a darkly comical song and like kind of allows the audience to laugh it's like it's okay it's not always gonna be serious you're allowed to laugh sometimes when you feel like it and like it's not gonna be a slog For those who don't know, uh, Come to the Fun Home is a song that Allison Bechtel is a child. So there are three Allisons in the show. There's regular Allison, who's the one writing the book. And then she, there are two distinct eras of her life when she's a child before she realizes her sexuality and she's, you know, still and she's in the home and with her father more often. And then her in college, medium Allison, when she discovers her sexuality and small Allison creates a fake commercial for the funeral home for the fun home with her two brothers john and christian and it begins and it's like full-blown late 60s early 70s like you know partridge family jackson five with references to laughing and aretha franklin and it's just so bonkers and dark but so hysterical um and it allows the audience to go like okay like sometimes this show will have some silliness to it. It's not always going to be, you know, this is important, which I think is weirdly itself important for the show. Uh, I talked about this in Carolina Change, but Janine talks about how George C. Wolf taught her the importance of what he calls idiot time, where the mm-hmm. audience uh, can follow, but they don't have to listen. Like sometimes an audience needs a moment to recharge, you know, especially when you're about to then bring them back into something really hardcore, which after come to the fun home, like there is a very twisted scene afterwards. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's really important. Carolina change because I forgot. And I just saw, you know, the revival of Adam mm-hmm. Brothers, which is amazing. And I'd forgotten that both of them feature, you know, like these moments of like joy and levity of little kids 
playing pretend, basically, and how well that works in both of those shows. Oh, absolutely. Roosevelt Patricia's Kosla, she's yeah. a bop. She puts you out on a high. Um, I would even argue a lot of the radio stuff in the show of Carolina Change, like, is not so much idiot time, but because it is that era of, like, 60s girl group, like, doo-wop, audiences are like, oh, music that I can recognize, that I can connect to. So it gives them two or three minutes of that before they go back into, like, the wretched tativ of the, Carolyn, there's extra food, sweet stuffed cabbage, cooked with brisket. Um, And, you know, come to the fun home, it is music that a lot of audiences can recognize. Like, this sounds like I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. They have Soccer to Me. They have Here Come the Judge, Here Come the Judge, Baby, which is laughing. That's Sammy Davis Jr. Um, which is just so funny. So yeah, you're not getting any plot information that you need. Yeah, there's no plot going on right now. It's not, and it, like, it's not so dense that you have to like wait through it. Like it's all at the surface because these are children and yeah. there is a humor to like the innocence of what they're doing even though the subject matter is so morbid, like they're talking about a, a, a Jackson five style commercial for a funeral parlor. Um, and like the little, you know, six-year-old brother, I think, I think that one's Christian. And he's like, your uncle died. Like he's just, like, so, <laughs> he's feeling his oats, but he's also like just talking about such dark stuff. And they have, yeah. and, and the, and it's also funny because like it is also exact rhymes. Um, I don't know how you feel about false rhymes or forced rhymes, but I think when a, when lyrics have tried and true rhymes, there's no beating it because it's when it's done well, it's just so clever that you have to applaud it. So like, uh, you know, our mourners so satisfied. They like, they like our formaldehyde. Like, I just think that's so brilliant. And on top of all that, it's a goddamn bop, Julia. I agree. It's interesting the thing you were saying about like idiot time because I remember doing a, a course where we were studying the score of Sweeney Todd and the way that they framed it was that like every number in the first act of Sweeney Todd is so economical with their information and they're accomplishing so much that then they sort of earn have a little priest at the end of this act that only once you know they've laid out so much and you as an audience have worked so hard can you just sort of like relax and listen to have a little priest where you don't need to do anything but i love this idea that actually with a show like this that maybe people would have more walls against that you do need to sort of judiciously front load that stuff to help people hear it all absolutely yeah and i think i think so i think the show does a lot of things really cleverly one is as you mentioned come to the fun home which happens early on it's in the first like maybe 10 minutes of the show uh it's like probably the second real number because the opening number it all comes back isn't a complete opening number right like it's it's more sort of setting the mood and setting what's going to happen you know we have allison at her workstation drawing and then the music begins the motif the you know the main theme of the show yeah. which which according to janine was the first thing she wrote before they even knew like what was going to happen she wrote do 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 which somehow like that theme like it sounds like memory, right? Like it sounds like a memory coming back into your brain, which is what I love about it so much. You know, like it's, it's constant, it moves, it, it flows. And it's like both complete, but also vague, if that makes sense, because you never remember anything vividly. You can remember certain things vividly, but you don't remember the entire thing. You don't remember exactly what the room looked like in the memory you have. You don't remember exactly what you were wearing or the exact wording somebody said. 
But you right. have- sort of like a nice literal thing on perspective because you have a figure, then you have an up a whole step, then you have a down whole step, you know, like looking at the same thing from different points in time. Exactly. And she even says, uh, Allison, she says, no, I, I need real things to draw from because I don't trust memory. Um, and so she has to look through her diaries and she has to look through photographs and all these things. And so, you know, small Allison comes in and she begins the daddy, hey, daddy, come here. Okay. And they talk about airplane, which at the moment feels just like a childhood thing, you know, playing airplane, you, you know, your parent lifts you up with their feet and you, you know, lay on top of them. And it seems like a everyday parent child kind of thing. And we'll go into it again later when we talk about the ending, but it has a much more um, uh, heavy meaning behind it with those two in particular, considering who she was and who he was. But then, you know, we go into Bruce and his sort of whole, um, ideology and like what makes him passionate, which so ah, okay. <laughs> I truly like this might be the messiest episode of the entire story series, only because like I just don't know how to properly give this show its due. Is I just think so highly of it. I'm gonna need you at one moment, Julia, to be like, well, I have this note, I have this critique here because I, <laughs> I have I actually have no critiques of this show. I just think it's so fantastic. But this opening is so brilliant in a lot of ways because Bruce is not a like is not really a likable person right he's cold he's distant uh he's he's awful to his wife he's uh you know very cold to his family and we find out that he also like is slightly a pedophile um which I don't know have you read the book of fun home I actually haven't read the book okay the book so the book, Bruce is actually worse in the book than he is in the show. Um, yeah, the, the book I also would argue is like a little colder and a little more cerebral. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not, not to like project onto Allison herself, but it does feel like because of her upbringing, she has a lot of intimacy issues, uh, <laughs> which is to say, you know, like you know, emotions or something, I don't think she necessarily uh, likes to confront. And so when she's dealing with her whole father and mother and all that, it's very academic the way she, she does a lot of academic references, a lot of Icarus and, and whatnot. But uh, her father, we find out in the book, was uh, molested when he was a kid by a farmhand because he you know lived on a Pennsylvania farm. And that kind of made an impact into his sexuality as he got older and remained closeted he uh had affairs with a lot of like teenage boys um in the town like a lot of 16 17 year olds some of whom were his students uh, a lot of whom were actually his students and the show shies away from that a little bit they make it a bit more that he's having affairs with men in fact the although to their credit they don't shy away from it entirely i mean they don't whitewash it no they don't whitewash it but they also the in the book, it's much more prominent that he tends to have sex with like younger men. Um, and it's implied that that's sort of something that stemmed from his sexual trauma as a kid, which when he talks about it in the book is not, he doesn't view it as trauma. He views it as like, oh, that was just my first time. Uh, but you know, uh-huh. it's it takes a lot of years to kind of look back on moments like that and recognize them for what they were. Lord knows it took me years, but uh, in the musical, and there's a, there's a, I, I was reading the script from the public and they made a slight tweak, which is when Helen, the mother played by Kunzi, informs Allison that her father is gay. What she says is your father has had affairs with men. 
And at the public, she used to say, your father has had affairs with men and boys, and then continues. But uh, in on Broadway, what she they changed it to, your father has had affairs with men, some of them young men. And then in days and days, she says, and boys, some, my God, some of them underage. So like, you're right, they don't shy away from it, but they do, they don't uh, emphasize quite so hard the, the, his preference towards younger. So it, he, there, it's not like he's, you know, yeah, it's not like a how I learned to drive situation where, you know, he's, you know, fondling nine-year-olds. He's, you know, he's going for jail, he's going for jail bait. Uh, which is still problematic and and deals with a lot of other stuff. But point is, um, all of this is to say, like you you hear all this right now. You hear these things about Bruce that he's cold to his wife, that he's cold to his children. He has these affairs with seventeen year old boys that he kind of grooms from his high school uh, English literature class because he also t- teaches English at a local high school. In addition to he so many jobs, so many, well, and that's the thing. Like he's such a brilliant man. Like he's so smart. He's so creative. He's so. Uh, talented as he said has so many jobs so there's so much to admire about him in a lot of ways but all in addition to this monstrous side of him as well but the show doesn't open with any of that the show opens with him in this more intimate moment with young Allison looking through stuff that he got from a neighbor for the for the house and he finds something that he likes and the music turns sort of wistful and optimistic almost how would you describe the music when he gets to the linen this is linen how would you describe that music there Gosh, um, I don't know if I have a, I mean, you know, that old Dorothy feels good about talking about music is like dancing about architecture. I mean, it is, you know, it's, it's lyrical. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. But, you know, like, I think because music is such a universal language, even if the meaning is different for everyone, you know, like music had, yeah. it's something we all speak, even though we all have different definitions. Uh, mm-hmm. But... Yeah, I mean, like, I think, I think what I mean more is like when you hear that music, like the words that come to mind for you. So, like, you hear that guitar going, the do 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 do. Yeah, there is a gentleness to it that we don't see elsewhere in his character. Silver? Is this silver? Is this junk or silver? With polish, we can tell. I love how tarnish melts away, opening to luster. And the mark, is there a mark? Yes, this stamp you see right here. That's how the craftsman leaves a sign that he was here and made his work so beautiful, so fine. This has traveled It's one of the softer moments he has with Allison. I remember when I first saw the show, I was like, this feels like a lovely father-daughter moment. And then as the show continues, I'm like, oh, right. And he's not that great of a father. Uh, but it it brings you in and you when you see what makes him passionate, you don't necessarily have to get passionate about it as well. But it it there's something about watching someone uh, engage in what makes them passionate that kind of makes them endearing to you. It's how I have remained friendly with every person who's come on the podcast, despite the fact that I am insane. They're like, I love how much you love Judy Kuhn. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> um, but so it, it, it brings you into him as a character. So that way, when we get to the colder elements of him, we can take him in as a, as a fully formed multifaceted character without being st- and completely turned off by him. It's sort of like the more skeletons we dig up, it's sort of like the more upset we get, but we aren't 
so upset that we don't watch, if that makes sense. Right. right. right? And that's sort of the intelligence of this opening is that it, it shows us this while also kind of exploring the fact that it's a memory and it establishes the vocabulary of the show of like how Allison will interact with her memories, even if they do not interact with her up until toward, towards the end. I love how embarrassed she gets mm-hmm. by like medium Allison's endeavors. Like she's more embarrassed by medium Allison than she is by small Allison. Yeah. Well, I think uh, that's so great about like, and so smart about small Allison is like when you think about the dynamics and the power dynamics between Allison and her father, that we do the first thing we see is, you know, like young Allison is so strident and so, you know, like there's so much throughout the show of, you know, he's telling her how to do the art, the genealogy project differently. And he's telling her things she can and can't do. And it seems like in a way she grows smaller and smaller in comparison to him. But mm. with all the, you know, like, come here, I want to play airplane. Like she is so much in control as a function of her youth, which is nice. Yeah, it's almost impossible to imagine Medium Allison opening the show the way that Small Allison does, where she's like, Daddy, come here. You're making me mad. You know, like, you're right. It, it, she is much more strident. She's much more rebellious and strong-willed as a child. And you do watch, as the show continues, her start to shrink under her father, while also reaching more of her potential as an artist and as an intellectual at the same time. Because yeah. he, he does teach her. Like, he... he that that whole scene where he's te- where he's showing her you know the proper way to make to draw a mountain and yeah. like on one hand he had he does help her uh become a better artist in some ways but he also has made her uh close off elements of herself in doing so and he makes her expand her brain intellectually but more closed off emotionally and you know there's the the gender norms of, you know, always having to, he makes her always put her barrette in like, and wearing mm-hmm. a dress. Uh, so I, because it just popped up and if I don't say it now, I'm going to totally forget it, but we will, I want to go back to the opening in a second. Cause this leads, you know, into sort of what I think is so genius about the show. There was a song off Broadway called Al for short, which is, you know, Allison's getting ready to go to a party and her father's like, you're going to put on a dress. And she was like, I don't, I don't like wearing dresses. Like, can I wear jeans? He's like, no. And he goes, I'm coming back in a few minutes. Like you better have your dress on. And then basically small Allison played at the time by Sydney Lucas does like a one woman show where she, <laughs> uh, where she imagines uh, being sort of a dude and going to France and rescuing a woman in a you know, bad relationship and them driving off into the countryside together. And she doesn't like being called Alice and she keeps saying, call me Al for short. And you know she's playing all the different characters herself, the dude who's mean, the, the damsel in distress. She incorporates some French. So you also understand that like small Allison is also very intelligent and very <laughs> learned. Uh, but you know, it is, it, it became a little bit cutesy and more of a one woman show for Sydney Lucas. And she already has Ring of Keys. So it's like enough, like give her Ring of Keys. So on Broadway, they altered it and just made it a scene between her and Bruce. And they, it, there's not much of new material there. It's a small bit where she's singing about how she hates the dress. And then they incorporate music from Helen's Etude and then uh, House on Maple Avenue which is when she confronts Bruce and she goes, I don't want to wear a dress. I feel like a clown. And she goes, you're wearing a girl color because he's wearing pink. And they have that quiet moment. And he basically 
gaslights her into putting on the dress. And he was like, everyone will talk behind your back. Every girl there is going to be wearing their prettiest dress and you want to wear pants. Fine by me. You want to be the not normal one. You want to be the one that everyone's going to make fun of. Go right ahead. And then he says, so are you going to change? Which is such a loaded line. Yeah. And, and then she sings for the part from Helen's attitude, which is then maybe not right now. And it blends into medium Allison coming out to her parents saying that I want, I want, which is, I mean, I, I, I love it when music, when motifs are reused in shows for different <laughs> dramatic reasons and it always yeah. works. I'm like, it's like, it's very Sondheim-esque because like Sondheim really was the one to, to like take that and run with it. And like he, like Rogers and Hammerstein started that with their reprises and making the reprises mean different things with each time they're repeated. But sometimes like, but what if we didn't just take the song? What if we took like a certain line and made it like, and threaded it through the show? Um, and it's just so brilliant. Maybe not right now. Maybe not right now. Dear mom and dad. Good. I'm trying to tell you something and I'm having a hard time because it's kind of a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. It might be a big deal. I don't know. I want, I want, I want, I am a lesbian. But this brings us back to Welcome to Our House on Maple Avenue, because that whole song is about Bruce's desires and nobody else's. You know, they're fixing up the house for the Allegheny Historical Society. And it's that he wants this here. He wants that there. He wants, he wants. And it's never about what they want. And that's sort of the whole thing about like the show reaches this breaking point in the third act where it's like everyone's had enough of having to please him, of doing everything for him. And once they break free, uh, break free, that's when he breaks down, uh, which I just think is so fantastic. What are your thoughts on Welcome to Our House on Maple Avenue? I've been talking for 9,000 years. Not true. Um, yeah, I mean, just going back to the scene about the dress, which is not what you just asked me about, but my thoughts Let's on Talk that about it. I love it so much. Is I do think, even though, you know, like you were saying, like he's gaslighting her and obviously nobody likes to see someone say they want to express themselves in a certain way and then someone in power says they can't. But I do think also that like, there's something really sort of protective and loving about why he's doing that. Like, I think even though he is, you know, it is sort of gaslighty, he also really is trying to protect her from the same thing he's trying to protect himself from, which is, you know, the horrors that will befall you if you were just like truly out in this way. So I think, yeah, absolutely. No, you're no, you're absolutely right about that. It comes from him having to conform to gender norms and bringing that onto his daughter, um, because that's how you survive. That's that's the way yeah. the world works, as far as he's yeah. aware. But because of who he is, yeah, it's you know, he doesn't he does not say it in a way where he's like, "I know you want to do this, but I right. don't think you're gonna. I don't think it's gonna work out very well if you do this." He he. He manipulates her in a very condescending way, in a very uh, totalitarian kind of way. Um, but you're no, you're absolutely right. Like it's not as clean cut as he's a monster, he's a villain. Like it comes from his own personal experiences, and this connects back to. And we'll, I, we will get back to Maple House, uh, House and Maple Avenue because I want to talk about this number more with you. But going back to your favorite number, Telephone Wire, that moment of party dress um, when they're in the car together, and he and. He sings like the 
I always knew. And she burst out and she talks about like how absurd she felt in a dress. I preferred to wear boy shirts and pants. Like that moment that was sort of oppressive when she was a child becomes a moment of release and, and recognition with him of like, don't you understand? Like we have a connection here. Like it took me years, but I, now I know. And the heartbreaking thing is like, he doesn't connect back. Um, Like if this were, if this were lifetime, that would be the moment he pulls over, they hug, they cry, they walk off into the sunset and like, I see you child. I see you papa. But no, he's already off in his own world. It's, oh God, Julia, the show is good. Lots of boys messed around, you know, for them it was a game they outgrew. But I always knew. Dad, me too, since like five, I guess. I prefer to wear boy shirts and pants. I felt absurd in a dress. I really tried to deny my feelings for girls. But I was like you, Dad, me too. Norris Jones. Dad. Norris Jones. Dad. It's such a good show. <laughs> ah, Maple Avenue. Talk to me. What are your thoughts? What are your immediate takeaways of this number? Um, well, something that I thought was interesting in one of the interviews that you sent me as part of my prep work was this idea of it was the writers talking about why Helen stays and what she gets out of this relationship. Yeah. And the idea that sort of being able to interpret him and help him get along in the world gives her something. And I hadn't thought about that. I think when I watched it, I hadn't thought about that. But hearing them say that in the interview made a lot of sense to me that she that she gets some satisfaction about corralling the family to help him move through the world through this house tour. Yeah. And another thing that, again, is like pretty obvious, but I don't think we've said it explicitly, is the idea of like the house being a metaphor for him. And, you know, the the way that it's constantly being worked on, the way that it is in some ways a monument to the past and not being modernized and sort of the vanity of it. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a brand new concept. It's something we always, we are still doing, which, and we're trying to all break ourselves free of, which is that idea of like, if I can get this in order, everything mm-hmm. else will fall into place. Like if it's, you know, if I, it's, you know, Marie Kondo and, you know, clearing out things that don't bring joy. It's the same thing of, you know, if I can clean my room and get rid of all the clutter, I can then conquer the world. And it's that mm-hmm. lyric that Allison sings that everyone that gets repeated in days and days, which is that everything is balanced and serene. Like chaos never mm-hmm. happens if it's never seen. And, you know, it's like, if I can get my home in order, everything else will come in order. And like, I can, I, I, I can conquer everything else because this is uh, the representation. This, this is uh, representative of me. And yeah. And yeah, I think you said everything very nicely, Julia. I have nothing to uh, add on to more. I just have, I can just pad. That's all I can do. He wants the real feather duster used on the bookcase. Find all the books we've read and carefully restore. He wants them alphabetized by classification. A volume out of place could start a third world war. That's an inch out of position. Watch it as a first edition. What are we missing? What have we left out when he 
comes down here, what's in store? He wants, he wants, he wants. Welcome to our house on May. I do remember when I saw it at the public, because I also, again, I went in with absolutely no knowledge of what it was about. I remember when he was doing the not too bad if I say so myself and he goes sometimes the fire burns so hot I don't know what I'll do not knowing what was going to happen I was like oh god is he gonna have an affair like is he <sighs> like is he gonna leave the family because he got to, has to be an artist and then she said the line about he was gay and I was gay and he killed himself and I'm like not what I expected let's see where this goes like I give them a lot of credit it, 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 I tend to think pretty far ahead like when I saw the new scream I was already figuring out in the first five minutes I'm like okay who's the killer it's you mm-hmm. it's it's you no it's her it's it's them it's both like yeah. I, I remember I remember being in the theater shouting because I saw with a group of people were like oh my god it's totally like they just revealed the killer I'm like no everyone it's gonna be two killers I'm telling you I like kept shouting it till oh. everyone heard me and then they revealed the second killer and I'm like told you all but uh, that is like one of those things where you kind of feel just uh feel satisfied by being correct fun home I could not mm-hmm. have been more thrilled to be incorrect in the first five minutes about yeah. where it was gonna yeah. go um, that, by the way, of, of the various motives in the show, then not too bad if I say so myself. That's one of my favorite of the little motivic pieces. I think it's really nice. Yeah. Well, it's that it's self-satisfaction without being egotistical. Um, and I think that comes from, I don't, it's, it's really hard to say this without sounding egotistical myself, but I think it takes a certain level of self-awareness and intelligence to understand when you yourself have done good work and mm-hmm. not necessarily feel the need to boast about it. It's like, I think this is objectively good, not just because I made it. I think this is good. Um, and I love that sort of that line, to, that line, as you said, you know, it's, it's not too bad if I say so myself, because Bruce has a high standard for everything, which he then imparts on medium Allison when she goes on into her drawings. And, and I mean, he literally uses it to describe himself as well to one of the guys he hooks up with, right? With the, I could still break a heart or two. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he, every time he sings it, it's about himself. Allison sings it about her work. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. And then with Roy, he does it as again in the, in the study, which is Helen's attitude, which is, uh, okay, so... The video I sent you, I mean, I don't know how much of it you remember from live, but the video I sent you doesn't show the moment happening that always breaks my heart, which is Helen comes home uh, with uh, as Bruce is showing Roy, former English student. Now he's like helping him with the house and the yard work and sometimes babysits the kids. And he takes him into the study to show him wallpaper, quote unquote. And Helen knows exactly what's about to happen. So she's practicing at the piano. And like, again, this is a family of accomplished artists or rather to say very talented artists. Like Bruce, while Bruce does all these things, like Helen also very intelligent, plays piano. She's She was once an actress. She speaks other languages and, and this all goes into their children. And while the scene with Bruce and Roy is happening, you know, Helen's at the piano. Is that your wife playing the piano? Don't worry about her. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. Made 
It's her kind of like mentally disassociating from the situation, trying to kind of like mask what she doesn't want to see, what she doesn't want to hear that she knows is going on. And I remember, I'll remember to the day I die, when she reaches halfway through the phrase and stops, Judy Kuhn stood up and then brought herself back down and went into the maybe not right now, maybe not right now. And it was in that moment where you went, what is she feeling? What is she thinking? What is she going to do? Is she, is this her toying with the idea of going in there and confronting Bruce? Is this her toying with the idea of just leaving? Is this her just to overcome to even, you know, block it out anymore? Like what's happening there? And then what does the, what do you think then maybe not right now means? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it before now, so I'm not sure. I mean, we get that line from her at the end about, you know, like basically saying to Alison, I didn't raise you to live your life the way I lived mine. Mm -hmm. And there is something, you know, very hopeful about maybe not right now, but this is not something I'm necessarily resigned for the resigned to for the entirety of my life. The other thing I'm thinking about the piano playing is there's something protective about that too, because it is to distract yourself, but it's also to sort of mask things for the children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, definitely she's playing piano to mask everything. I never thought of that, that she's trying to mask things for the children. Because when, you know, Allison's trying to be around her, she's like, stop bothering me. Um, but, 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 but I think, I think there's something to be said for that as well, because she talks about later on how, like, you know, she and Bruce covered a lot of things up I think for me I mean and, and again I think it can mean many things and I would love to know what Lisa and Janine meant by it my interpretation was always like it could be two things maybe not right now maybe maybe now is not the moment that I leave but eventually mm -hmm. or like or maybe now is not the moment that he'll finally choose me over this but eventually maybe because it eventually oh, goes into the I, I want like to Hmm? I don't buy that. I feel like that's too optimistic. I, I, I don't necessarily buy it myself. I, the only reason I bring it up is because it goes into the me and him, me and him hmm. way it sort of crescendos at the end there. And she sings about in days and days, like, you know, there was a time when he swept her off her feet and yeah. there was a romance there. There was a love there that brought her in. And then when it went cold, like, first of all, it's the, you know, it's the 1960s. What do you do? Yeah. you're you're you already have kids you have a home it's the 60s in america like you're in too deep as a woman like you could get divorced but like what are your options after that and like you would probably have to take the kids and you don't have a job uh it's a whole it's like it's sort of this feeling of being trapped then also like eventually i'll get out or eventually you know it'll it'll just be us again who knows and i think that does it's connect not... to hmm? i saw you trapped i just can say it's not the, the mission of this story, but I'm just thinking about it now. I wonder what that character felt like. Well, that person felt like after his death. What Bruce felt like after his death? No, oh, no, what, what Helen felt like after his death. I mean, you know, like in some way, you know, yeah. she's freed. Uh, I was about to say, I was like, I think Bruce felt dead after his death, but. Yeah, it felt uh, very little, although, you know, who of us can say. Yeah, they do cover some of the aftermath of his death in the book. Uh, and with Helen like when 
he died she got rid of a lot of his stuff and i do believe she sold the house eventually but like they show allison illustrates a scene where joan comes for the funeral and helen's like joan take whatever you want like from the book she's like she's like oh you've been so helpful take a book from the bookshelf she's like and don't take a stupid paperback like take something that's valuable um and Mm -hmm. part of it is you know like i want to rid myself of all of this and also in the book she talks Mm -hmm. about in the book helen had asked for a divorce i think two weeks before bruce killed himself oh wow yeah so i think they were still technically living together but like she she was gonna get out and now she's officially out but uh yeah, the musical you can see makes why they didn't include that in the musical. Yeah, the musical that... opts to make her a bit more of a tragic figure than the book. The book, she's a little more, she's similar to Bruce in the sense that she's kind of cold and she's distant and uh, a little more harder edged. And in the show, hmm. she's they tap into more of what she could possibly be feeling. And going through, which I, which I think is good, especially because in a musical, you need that if you're going to sing, because you got, because singing comes from an overwhelming well of emotion, you know, where you can't Mm -hmm. talk anymore. And I think that's important. You can't, you cannot have characters who are so cold saying you can have characters who are maybe repressed and have feelings that they aren't sharing, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is what Fun Home does so well. You can have characters who like have no feelings, you know? Um, yeah. I got distracted because I just, I, I love the Helen of it all, but that's because I'm a Kunzi fan and I'm going to make you a Kunzi fan yet, Julia. I'm telling you. So we haven't talked about Medium Alice and all that much. Yeah. Changing my major. Perhaps one of the best songs of the last 10 years. Okay. Uh, Maybe 15 years, yeah. So as we're sort of charting Allison's adolescence of her, you know, slowly, as you said, like losing some of her independence in favor of becoming more well-rounded intellectually and creatively. And then Allison as a, as a teenager in college, weirdly kind of finding that independence again once she gets to college and finds her sexuality, which by the way, <laughs> Um, this is not something that the show made up. This is that what's in the book. And it's very on brand that this is how Allison discovered she was a lesbian. She didn't discover it through pornography. She didn't discover it through another person. She discovered it by reading a book. In a bookstore. She discovered it in a bookstore by reading a book, which tells you all you need to know about the Bechtel family and how they deal with sexuality and emotions. Um, and yeah, she reads about, she finds out by reading Word is Out. And up until a certain moment, she's what I would call a conceptual lesbian. She's a lesbian in concept, but not necessarily mm-hmm. in practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, she recognizes that her uh, attraction and her sexual chemistry and her energy and her mentality all sort of fall in line into this the sexual preference column, let's say. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to par- properly describe the fluidity of gender and sexuality, Julia. Do you? Do you have a PhD in it? I, I, I have figured this out. Yes, I'll let you know. No, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, funny you should mention this, Matthew. I have a 5,000 spe- uh, word speech right here. Let me just go on for 10 minutes on it. No, um, But you know what I mean? Like, it, it's she, it, up until a certain moment, it's not about the actual sexuality of being a lesbian, but it's literally everything else. And she comes out to her parents through a typed letter, which I love. Mm-hmm. 
um, which again comes from the book. <laughs> like, if you ever read the Sondheim letters on Instagram or anything like that, where it's all typed up and then signs his name, like that's that's literally how Allison comes out to her parents. Like, dear mom and dad, I am a lesbian. Sincerely, Allison. Um, but so she. Well, there's her- something very attractive about being able to plan your words for something that big. Yeah, well, words are important. And I think that is something we've kind of forgotten because for people, it's uh, we tend to get both wrapped up and not wrapped up in words. Like when it comes to someone maybe using the wrong words, we get too wrapped up in those are the wrong words, but not wrapped up in what the intention was. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you listen to people who have these really brilliant thoughts, but because they don't care about how they word it so much. They use like Uh and um and random and hot mess so much that the potency of the thought gets lost. Mm -hmm. And for someone like Alison Bechtel, words are very important because, you know, her father implemented that in her by making a read portrait of a young artist and Colette and all this stuff. Anyway, Mm -hmm. she finally has her first sexual experience with a girl named Joan and goes into the song Changing My Major. Now, Julia... My dear Julia, as a writer, can you talk me through the things about this song that you enjoy as a as an audience member, as a writer, as a person? Well, one thing I like about it, I mean, I think it's one of the funnier songs. Like, I actually think this song is even funnier than the fun home commercial. Like, the line about, you know, the dimensionally huge student loan. And I think Janine DeStoria is so brilliant at sort of setting colloquial things so that the humor that would be funny if it said is really just as funny while being sung, which is so hard to do. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really interesting that when I was watching, again, that interview that you sent where Lisa Crone is talking about how it's really important to her that the song be sort of carnal. It's about sex. It's not about love. And that sort of juxtaposed against the music, which, you know, what Janine's story talks about in that interview is wanting the music to be joyful and light and just this moment of, like, pure elation in contrast to how so much of these feelings get, like, muddied. But... There's something so sort of old-timey classical about the actual sound of it and, you know, the little waltz of it all, that it is this sort of very, you know, musically pure song about sex, which is a weird juxtaposition. Yeah, I think because of our society's viewpoints on sex, right? Like, it's always thought of a hush-hush dirty thing. And, I mean, sex is something that the body's designed to do. And ecstasy is something that we're designed to feel. And I mean, I'm not, without getting too graphic, I will say um, the first time I had sex, which was in college, I remember talking to a friend about it the next day after I lost my V card. And they're like, well, how was it? And I said, well, this may not be PC, but it's really nice to show someone else your naked body. And they're like, yeah, totally. Let's go. Because up until then, you're always like, you're the only one who's ever seen your naked body. And, you know, we're both our best critic and our worst critic. Mm-hmm. And so there are days when I feel myself I'm like, oh, yes, no one can touch me. Jake Gyllenhaal, who, you know, like who, who's that flop? Then there are days where I'm like, oh, right. Like I should cover up in 5,000 layers. No one should ever see me. And there is something to be said about someone seeing your naked body and not only saying like, yeah, no, let's have sex, but being like, no, I want to give you pleasure. And I want you to give me pleasure. It's intimate. It's carnal. And it's fulfilling and it's lovely. I mean, obviously then you have the double-edged sort of quote unquote meaningless one night stands, 
but that's a whole other issue. The intimacy of sex and especially sex for the first time. Yeah, I guess what I meant wasn't necessarily that like a sort of a intimacy versus dirtiness, but there is something I think sort of like mannered about oh, how the music sounds. You know, you're absolutely correct. I'm, I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm adding on, Julia. I'm not disagreeing with you. You're absolutely correct, and it is a waltz, right? Like it's it, the music is a waltz there. Yeah. Um, I think what what I love about the song is because of that, like sex isn't a dirty thing. It's it's a joyful thing, especially when it's you know. Um, uh, a pinnacle moment of your life, right? You know, where it's the first time you're feeling this kind of elation of ecstasy. And it's, it's uh, the innocence of the song, I think is what keeps the fact that it is purely about sex from seeming too uh, blue humor. Um, <laughs> like it, 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 it could have been so easy to make uh, pardon my my language, everybody, but it'd be so easy to like make a you know dirty joke about her vagina or you know what it's like to you know f- you know do lesbian stuff or you know fondle the boobs, like they could have done that. A, l- a lesser, grosser writer could have done that. Like you can just imagine what Dane Cook's lyrics for this song would have been, right? Like the number of jokes you tried to do by rhyming vulva with something, and Lisa Crone's lyrics are so perfect because they are joyful while also not shying away from the fact that it is about sex, the beauty of having sex with a woman, of all the things about being with a woman that Allison has suddenly realized she loves. Um, and it's not her saying like, and her mind is wonderful. She's like, I love like taking my finger and going down her spine. Like I love getting her out of her jeans. And it's like, yeah, that's all great. Go girl. Yeah. At one point when I was touching you and said I might lose consciousness, which you said was adorable, and I just have to trust that you don't think I'm an idiot or some kind of an animal. I never lost control due to overwhelming lust, but I must say that I'm changing my major to Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan with a minor in kissing Joan. The the verses are also conversational, right? Um, And stream of consciousness, very Jason Robert Brown without being too annoying about it. Um, And it's just delightful. And I love that it doesn't end on a big high money note. No song in the show does. Mm, um, yeah. And it has some money notes. Like it has the big sex with Joan, uh, but it doesn't feel the need to oversell. And yeah, I don't know. I remember watching Sosha do it at the public and it got such a wonderful response. Every time I saw Emily Skeggs do it on Broadway, she got such a huge response. Mm-hmm. And like Skeggs, and I don't think she disagreed with me on this, like isn't the world's biggest belter. Like she's she's a singing actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and to watch her stop the show all six times I saw it with, you know, not a crystal clear Patti Lapone belt mm-hmm. shows you like how it's not necessarily about the vocals of this song. Right, right. Yeah. It is about the emotional potency of it. Yeah. Uh, tell me, tell, tell me things that you like about it as a writer. Like when you, when you listen to like, ah, oh, that's a good moment there. Gosh, I mean, like, I guess, yeah, the main thing that I like about the writers, what I already said about sort of the text setting and the, mm-hmm. you know, willingness to break out of form to follow the thoughts. Is there, a, is there a certain 
moment where you're like, ah, oh, that gives me writer envy. Like I like I wish I could have written that moment. Oh gosh, nothing's gonna come to my mind right now. I mean, you know, the whole thing, everything gives me writer envy. <laughs> I mean, I think it's not a line that rhymes because I mean a lot. Uh, I think the first. Actually, no, I think both verses with, with stream of consciousness, I don't think any of it actually rhymes, but uh, I love the line that goes, the line that I love in the beginning is when, so like when she is singing to Joan and, and before she goes into the actual chorus, <laughs> she goes, uh, um, thank you for not laughing. Well, you laughed a little bit. And <laughs> I yeah, yeah. that always gives me a giggle because I also think sex is something where like, you do kind of have to laugh sometimes because even when it's good, it is also ridiculous at the same time. I, I, I remember my grandmother once asked me and I can't believe I said this to her, but she was like, who are you looking for in a partner? I'm like, I want someone who will laugh with me during sex. Cause it's just so ridiculous when you think about it. And, but like, we'll laugh, but still move on with it. And so I, there's something heartwarming, but also funny about that moment. Like it's, yeah, yeah I just, uh, it warms I mean, my heart. Likewise, again, with like the tech setting, the way that line is set does give the actress room yeah. to sort of, you know, put their own comic spin on it, which is nice. It's Oh, absolutely. Oh, I adore it. So I think every young actress should work on that song and shouldn't be allowed to do anything else until they have done a decent version of that song. I love it. And also, I mean, the thing you were saying about like perfect rhyme before that, you know, you were saying there's not a lot of rhymes in the beginning, but what I think is the funniest line about the dimensionally large student loan, mm -hmm. you know, does land with Joan. Absolutely. And I think it wouldn't land as hard if it didn't. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think, and what I love about it is it does sort of go into how thoughts work, especially when you're feeling so much, right? You know, she has a stream of consciousness, consciousness, and then goes into the choruses, which are moments of pure clarity, right? Yeah, yeah. Where you know, she's like, I don't know what happened, I don't know who I am, but it's like, it's like, but you know what? All of a sudden, it's just so clear. All I want to do now is just have sex with Joan all the time because that was the greatest I've ever felt. And then there's, I love when it goes into the part where she's like, I'm so scared about this, like. When, like when you feel so happy, there's fear about it as well. Cause it's like, I've never hit this high before. What do I do if it, when I get out of it, is, is this a place that's even safe for me? It's just so, it's so human and, and understandable. It's why like when that straight boy behind me at equity was like, well, my dad wasn't gay, so I can't relate. And I'm like, can you not relate to this? Mm -hmm. It's called empathy. God damn it. And I mean, it does in a way also for all of the smart detail work in it. It also does sort of fill your idiot time criterion of, you know, we know what happened. She had sex with Joan and we just get to sit back for a couple of minutes and. Absolutely. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. It, it's, this is a song that actually is perfect kind of idiot time because it is both character development and idiot time at the same time. Your mm -hmm. audience can relax while also falling more in love with the character, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's so good. Julie, it's just so good. I'm going to say it again. I think they should stay in the show. They should keep that one. They should. Yeah. I don't think this song should get cut. Not one bit. <laughs> um, well, there's the other Allison song, which we have to talk about because that one sort of became the the anthem of the show, which is Ring of Keys, yeah. which, I th which at the time I thought many people incorrectly identified it as a sexual awakening song, which I which I do not think that it is. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, no, I don't think she's like literally attracted to that woman. No, she's also so young that like I mean, any kind of sexual feeling she could possibly feel, I don't think she would understand it anyway. But it's, I mean, I don't know about you. I was not the most sexually aware nine year old, but mm-hmm. like I wasn't walking around being like, do him, do him, do him. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> that didn't come till I was eleven. But uh, yeah, so. Why don't you, Julia, set the scene for Ring of Keys? Where are we at? Who's in the scene? What's about to happen? What's going on? So I'm trying to remember, is this is it on their is it on their trip to New York that they see this woman? Or are they in their I, hometown? I think it's a separate memory. Okay. Uh I believe it is a roadside diner near their home. Uh okay. yes. And it this is sort of yeah. woman who's like a delivery woman or something walks into the diner and it's just the epitome of sort of a woman presenting as who she feels like and who she wants to be we presume and young Allison sees her and is attracted to both I think that aesthetic and sort of you know the freedom to be inhabiting that aesthetic and mm-hmm. is observing again like you're saying before about you know young Allison being very smart even in this song you know like is it her swagger and her bearing you know it's like very it's very top of your intelligence for a kid that young which I really like you know it's it's believable it's that it's her yeah, she's very smart. Yeah, we've and we do establish before this song because this song comes much later, like towards if if the, or if we're going by three act structure, this is right at the end of the second act, like going into the final third of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have established that she is intelligent even from a young age, yeah. and yeah, it's it's this awareness of finding someone who before you even know that it's what you want perfectly resembles everything you want to be uh yeah and i think in the book she describes it as like being in a foreign country and seeing someone else who's from home and Mm -hmm. that was the time that was the first time she ever felt anything like that where she saw a woman a what she called an old school butch and like allison bechtel today is you know very much similar she's a she's very masculine kind of woman or at least, you know, the tropes that we identify with masculinity, let's put it that way. Uh, she talks about this uh, trucker woman, delivery woman, you know, and, you know, has the ring of keys on her belt and has the boots and the clothes and short hair. And it's it it's almost this brave bravery. Bravery is a word, right? Sure okay. is. Sometimes I make up words that sound like mm-hmm. words. So I always second guess myself, especially because I've been so all over the place with this episode. And I've only had one cup of coffee, Julia. It's been a weird Saturday. <laughs> well, you know, language is evolving. But yes, bravery yes. is real. And I just watched the new one just like that. And that messed with my psychology because I'm like, what is reality anymore? But speaking of sexual awakenings, um, are you watching it just like that? I haven't. I haven't dipped into it yet. I was a big fan of like the original franchise, but I haven't. Well, Julia, that's because you don't hate yourself like I do. You have have kept yourself sane by not watching that show. It is insane. Uh, Carrie peas in a jar. That's all you need to know. Uh, Oh, yeah. And she projectile vomits on a date. But anywho. Yeah, I could go into it further, but we're not going to. But, you know, like that, it's that there's a bravery about this woman, especially considering this is probably the late sixties in the middle Mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania of defying societal uh, gender norms, 
by living her truth and sort of shucking what a woman has to be or what they have to look like by going with what she's comfortable in or how she just naturally feels. And there's when there's an aura to that kind of confidence that people gravitate towards, especially if it's connected to what they subconsciously want themselves. And I also love the idea, like this woman just was going about her day, has absolutely no idea that she did this for someone else, probably died before ever knowing that she did that for somebody Mm -hmm. else. And I don't know, like in some ways it makes you want to go out on the street and be like, I'm going to inspire someone today by living my best life. But I mean, what are the odds that actually happens? It also is nice that it's like, I like it when metaphors work on a metaphorical and a literal level. That you know, like a ring of keys, obviously it is, you know, entry into other worlds and being able to go places and be in welcome places. But also it's just literally a big jangly hunk of metal that fits in with this vibe. Absolutely. I also think, I mean, maybe I'm overanalyzing, but I feel like there's a connection to that and maps where she sings, I can draw a circle. Uh, like how the ring is a circle. It's, it's there's, I mean, circles are, you know, it's a cycle and they're complete, right? And, and it all kind of connects. Everything always connects, even if you can't always see it. And there's a there's a cause and effect. There's a chain of reaction. There's a ring of keys of reactions, if you will. And everything sort of fits inside in some way. And it's just about finding where it fits. And as you said, like there's something so beautiful about it being that kind of metaphor while also just literally being a ring of keys that she looks at as a child and she's like, holy shit, look at that thing. It's probably conceited to say, but I think we're alike in a certain way. I, um, your swagger and your bearing at the just right clothes, your Like what I so what I love about Janine Tesori as a writer, first of all, she is the most versatile composer around. You listen to this score and you can't believe it's the same woman who wrote Gimme Gimme from Millie, who wrote <laughs> Freak Flag from Shrek, who wrote, you know, the entire opening sequence of Carolina Change. Yeah. They're all just so very different, but they're also so specific to the story and to the characters. And not only are they musically compelling, they're also so actable. And yeah. and I think it's for me, it's what makes her ultimately the premier composer we have right now on Broadway, not just female, like totally, like com- completely, at least for me. Um, granted, she's had more musical work produced than a lot of other composers these days, but so it's easier to kind of look at that versatility, but still like all you have to do is realize like Millie and Caroline came out like within a year or two of each other and just how crazy opposite those scores are and then this score which like is has a lot of the complexity of caroline but again is a little more accessible in a lot of ways without feeling watered down in any way mm-hmm. i just i don't know i julia as a composer tell me like what the things that you enjoy about this score about janine because this is just a this this, this episode is a love letter to this show in my eyes yeah. No, I mean, it is. I think it's very, it's very emotional music. It's very beautiful. It's like a lot of the sort of the harmonic world of it, 
like we were saying before, like she's doing, I feel like a lot of these, like, I don't even know what the right word is, but you know, where you're, you have a chord in the right hand and you know, you're like shifting what the bass is under it to like recontextualize that chord. I think all of that is very smart. And I do think, I mean, again, I'm not an actress, but I think like you were saying, it leaves a lot of breathing room for the actors to bring something to it, which I think mm -hmm. is a very generous and smart thing to do. I don't know. I think you're an actress. You acted like you cared about what I had to say this entire time. I totally did. <laughs> I pulled it off. I mean, Janine also like a song like um, Edges of the World, which is Bruce's big breakdown song. Mm -hmm. I love it because it is not a bop. It's not like it's not intentionally harsh and you know clashing and like there's a there's a there's a logic to it all still while also musically representing a breakdown because I've talked about this with other writers where sometimes a moment happens where it's supposed to be a really rough spot for the character but the composer cannot bring themselves out of making it a bop. Huh. The la when a character is that sort of on the edge, the last thing you want as an audience member is to go like, mm, yeah, this is a bop. This is a bop. Yeah, this is a bop. The primary yeah. example I use, how, despite how much I adore it, honestly, for all the wrong reasons, Diana, mm. the musical. Mm. There is a song where Diana, like kind in act one, like is on the edge of a breakdown. She has postpartum depression. She's like, she eventually attempts to kill herself. And the whole song, you're like, uh. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm like, that's the last thought you want to have when a character is that broken. And I like that there's sort of that lack of ego for Janine Desori as a composer. She's like, no, it, it's dramatically important for the audience to understand how far gone this character is and how close they are to destruction, or in Bruce's case, eventual destruction. And the music has to reflect that. Yeah. yeah, I think that she's she's not beholden to form ever. And I think that's why so much of like her music feels naturalistic, feels realistic. Mm. So it makes sense that, you know, she certainly wouldn't be shoeboxing a particularly emotionally messy moment into form either. Absolutely. And like, and for anyone who goes, you know, like, oh, well, you know, whatever happened to like the toe tapping tunes, the old days, I'm like, listen to forget about the boy girlfriend can write a toe tapping tune if she wants to like if if the content dictates that form, she'll do it. And like, you know, come to the fun home, even raincoat of love, like those are bops like and that sound like they're, they're from the period. But uh, edges of the world is truly, you know, that unleashed runaway train kind of song. And even she even goes back and uses moments of the score before like the i think she uses the not too bad if i'd say so myself i could still break a heart or two um and then just ends it on that's actually the one song that ends on a big high money note <laughs> what am i standing here hit by the, by the truck um yeah i mean I, I that's all i really wanted to say about it other than the fact that michael service just sells the living shit out of it yeah. but and again, I feel like they've earned that money note situationally because being hit by an oncoming truck is a higher stakes moment than, you know, like a post-coital, like, happiness moment, you know. Those Absolutely. are different weights. And then dramatically it's good because it takes you by surprise when the truck comes because at that point you've almost forgotten that the truck happens. 
You've right. been told about it so many times. And then you watch him break down and watch this song build and build and build to this huge money note only to have the song, uh, have the note get cut off by the truck. And you're like, oh, you get, you, you forget for a moment that it's coming, which is honestly the best kind of writing. Um, I had a teacher in college who talked about how he thinks 1776 has one of the best librettos of all time because it genuinely makes you forget the outcome of of that of mm. the Declaration of Independence. Like, right, act, yeah, you like get halfway through the show, you're like, are they gonna actually sign it? Like, it doesn't seem like they're going to, and you forget. <laughs> like, of course they're going to, but yeah, you forget. Um, or it's like the brilliance of Titanic, the movie. You know how it's gonna end, but like it gets that moment where they get close to the iceberg, and you're like, come, like you every time you see it, you're like. They can do it. You know, they like, come on, just do it. You you can yeah. do it. You forget like, no, they have to hit it because they do hit it. Um, and they always have hit it. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a, it takes a really skilled writer and not every skilled writer can do it every time. But to tell you upfront, this is what's going to happen before the night is over. And you're going to forget that that happened when it actually happens. Mm-hmm. It's a great magic trick. Agree. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have to talk about days and days too much because you made it very clear you hate Judy Kuhn, but hate or hate the song. Very lot. little patience for this, but okay, go on. Yeah. Throw it out. Get it. Take him out back. Take him out back. No, days and days is just such a devastating song. And it's, I mean, Taylor Swift tried to write her own version of it, which was called Death by a Thousand Cuts. And I listened to it and I was like, days and days did it better, Taylor. But you know, just the idea of every minute that you, you don't realize the time you've wasted until it's been so long, right? Like, it's, you know, in the moment, it's the maybe not right now kind of situation where you yeah. you push it off and you do other things and you distract yourself until you realize, like, I've wasted all this time compartmentalizing for what? Uh, yeah. And it's just such a devastating song and I love it very much. But I want to talk about Telephone, Telephone Wire because that's your favorite song. And we touch on it for a second. But so in the show, Medium Allison has come home after finding out that her father is gay uh, from her mother after having come out herself and brings Joan home for break. And her mother has sung Days and Days and she goes to see her father and they go out for a drive. Now, dramatically speaking, who's in the car with him? Like, who do we see on stage in the car with him? It's it's grown up, Allison, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It's such a wonderful moment because the way that they did it on Broadway was medium Allison was standing in between grown up Allison and Bruce. Mm. And so when he says, are you ready to go for that drive? He's looking at what we think is medium Allison. Because until that moment, right. as I said, like until that moment, adult Allison has always interacted with everything, but no one has ever acknowledged her because it's a memory. It's like, it's Emily going back in our town and no one's listening to her when she talks about like, listen, we're all dead now. Um, <laughs> she's like, no, we all died years ago. And like, do you want bacon? Um, she, which actually, and Janine did say that our town was a big uh, influence for them when writing the show. Okay. Huh. But yeah, which I mean, it's those fingerprints are all over Fun mm-hmm. Home. I would say like Our Town and Glass Menagerie are like probably the biggest influences more so than any other musical in history. But, you know, Bruce says, are you ready to go for that drive? And Medium Allison doesn't say anything. And then Large Allison realizes this is her moment to actually like be in the story again. And she goes, she sits in there. She is, 
she is being medium Allison herself while also being large Allison. It's, it's such a great moment. Anyway, so they're in the car. Why is it called telephone wire? Gosh, I mean, so I guess again, it's grown up Allison has this feeling that there's something she could have said on that drive that would have had some effect on if not, you know, the outcome of her father ending his life, you know, their relationship, just that would have been some perfect thing that she didn't find. And so you have the sense of her seeing the telephone wire at the window and, you know, at the light, you know, when we stop at the light, I'm going to have this juncture to say something, but it never comes. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I guess you have the whole thing about telephone wires and communication and how people reach each other. Yeah, it's it's like Ring of Keys where it's both a metaphor, but also literal. Like she's yeah. it, she's in the car. And she's, as you said, like she's staring out at the at the window, looking at the telephone wire, right. sort of, you know, see, taking in everything around her. But what she really wants to do is talk to her father. Telephone wire, long black line. Telephone wire, finely threaded sky. There's a pond where I went waiting. There's a sign for Sugar Valley. On the mountain, light is fading. I go back to school tomorrow. In college. And then the kicker is that he's the one that actually begins the conversation. Yeah. And it's not even a conversation. It's just him sort of monologuing almost to her and says, you know, I had there my there was a boy that I did things with that was my first time in a barn. He goes, and you know, all these boys messed around as well. And the line is for them, it was a game they outgrew, but I always knew. And that's when Allison comes forward. She's like, Yes, here's the moment. And she starts talking singing to him and it connects back to party dresses like remember i hated being in dresses and all this stuff yeah. i was like you and then as i said before like the kicker is it's a moment of connection for her but he doesn't connect back and it's that yeah time. so he's being so generous in his vulnerability but he's still narcissistic and that he's not taking in what she's putting out yeah and and on top of that he's it's the beginning of him breaking down as well because we've had some uh inclinations that he is on edge right like it, it, earlier in this in the show when she comes home like she talks about how like oh he's been writing to me now like three four times a week the letters are getting a little right. more manic right. oh he bought the new house that old house down the road he's gonna start fixing it up like he he's getting he threw the brimley down the stairs like he's he's getting more manic right. so there's part of him that is mentally kind of starting to fall apart but at the same time as you said like there is also that selfishness and that narcissism of like this isn't a connection. This is a moment of self-reflection for him. And he yeah. barely even acknowledges what she says um, and then goes back into regular conversation. Uh, and the, the way that it ends, you know, this can't be our last, that was our last night. It's, it's just so, it's devastating. Every time I've seen it, I cry. And, I, and not in a way that's like self-important, ugly crying. It's just watching watching it's 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 the titanic situation where you're like you want them to not hit the iceberg you feel like yeah. if you will it hard enough they won't hit it 
and you hate yourself for trying to because you know they're not that they're not going to be able to miss it. They're going to they're going to hit it. And you know that they're not going to connect she and him because that's not who he is. No, at the end of the show, he's got to die soon. And it also has that amazingly like emotionally complex line. I'm going to paraphrase it, but about the like, I'm so, you know, like, I'm so afraid that this this moment of this outcome is because of me. And I'm so afraid that it has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. I think that is like so rich and interesting. Oh, yeah. Because she, it's sort of the, um, the emotional baggage of it being connected to her is almost too much to bear, but it's not worse than thinking, that, than realizing that it has absolutely no connection with you. Like someone who is so important to your life, who made the most important decision they could, which is take their own have absolutely nothing to do with you when in so many ways their decision has impacted everything about you for the rest of your life. It's, it's almost like the ultimate fuck you to be like, to have it mean nothing at all to them, you know? Uh, And it, and this isn't like a random person. This is your, this is your parent. Uh, No, you, I think you said it actually pretty accurately. I don't think you paraphrased it at all. Uh, Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah. Why is the final song flying away? Why is it that, do you think? Hmm. Let's see, okay, I'm trying to bring this song back into my head. It's you get the three Allisons singing at the same time, which you haven't had that much of up until now, I don't think. So there's that nice, is it? You open your mouth, like maybe I'm- No, 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 I, I do think it's the only time the three of them have sung together alone anyway anytime they've yeah. ever sung at the same time it's been like in the opening when everyone is singing you know mm-hmm. uh so there's this a nice sort of you know unity of of personhood yeah and you know again there's a nice metaphor of like because the very last image is for that for that you know for some brief moment i soared above him or something like this right which yeah i think it's uh caption uh every so often there was a brief moment were of perfect balance when I soared above Tim. I I am paraphrasing, but that is like 90% accurate, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Which I do think, I mean, it's a nice, I wouldn't call it a moment of levity, but I mean, it's a moment where she's fully in herself, where she can say something that is true and not super dark about her relationship with her dad. Like I'm literally thinking about air, like the pose of airplane and she's, you know, she's perpendicular to him. They're not like parallel lines. Like, yeah. I don't know. I think it's, yeah, it's a neat, not too heavy handed way to move, you know, cause like, I feel like that's the thing with a lot of like shows where you have a really dark moment is like, what do you do the moment after? And like, how do you get out of that moment? Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think it's a nice, elegant way of doing it. What do you think about that last moment and why that's the last song? Julia, you should know by now, I don't have thoughts and I don't have opinions. I just sit here and I look pretty and I just, I just bop around. Um, Yeah, I think you're right on a, on a dramatic level, especially because we talked about this earlier, rather to say, I talked at you about this, um, how this is a show where despite its subject matter, it's very clear that uh, Crone and Tesori don't resent their audience and they don't want them to go out depressed. Uh, So they have to find a way out of that moment. And I think, you know, it's the, Bruce's death is, you know, 
while it's inevitable, it's also the ultimate gut punch of the of the show. It's sort of the darkest place that Allison has to bring herself out of in order to continue on with the book. And so to get out of there, she goes through other memories as well. You know, she goes, here's what I have of you. Here's what I remember of you. How, you know, you smelling like this, you in front of a class of students telling right, me right. how I'm supposed to feel like about these books. And yeah. yeah, which is, you know, it's sort of the, it's such an old school mentality of teaching. And she explores it a bit more in the book when she talks about going off to college with these teachers, like overanalyzing books. And then she would have to call up her dad to be like, this is bullshit, right? He's like, absolutely. Here's what it actually is. And, <laughs> and that's the thing about literature and art, right? Is, you know, there's, you can have what the artist's intention was, but mm -hmm. once it's out into the world, it kind of no longer matters. All it can do is just give you context of what it meant when they wrote it, but it can mean so much more later on with other interpretations of how it ages into the world. But so I love that Bruce's like whole mentality is, you know, here's this brilliant work of art and here's what it means definitively. Uh, but yeah, it, it gets you out of the darkness of that into lighter moments for her, which aren't necessarily like wholesome moments. It's not like, here's you hugging me and telling me I was beautiful and enough. It's like, here's you calling me up at school to talk to me about literature, uh, which, yeah. And then, you know, Airplane is... In the, in the book, she says, you know, it was worth the discomfort simply because it was a moment of physical touch. Right. Um, they didn't have, she says, you know, like I could count on one hand the number of times we touched each other and it wasn't like, you know, either moving me out of the way or, you know, other stuff. And she says, you know, I have more detailed memories of my father bathing me as a child and my mother she's like and my mother must have done it 10 times more than my father ever did but for some reason because it was him and it was so rare I remember those moments more, uh, more clearly anyway yeah I think it's finding that moment it's it's you said it's the perpendicular she's uh you know lateral he's uh what was wrong for perpendicular no I, I don't know I'm not I'm not a geometry person I didn't go to school for fucking math uh but also you know that balance, that symmetry of that rare moment when they would fit with each other, uh, yeah. despite how similar they were and how not similar they were. You know, she says constantly, Allison's making captions for the book. And early on, she says, you know, caption, my father and I were just alike. Caption, my father and I were nothing alike. And it's true, you know, and you, we, you cannot avoid becoming a little bit like your parents as you get older. It's just going to happen. And but especially with her and Bruce, because of who they were and their and their instincts and their urges, there is something that's going to always link them together. And. Yeah, I think Airplane is just like that rare moment where they fit with each other. And yeah. so it's it's coming back to that moment and all three Allison singing together is like this moment of uniform where she's kind of in sync with all of her past selves and they all sort of have the same feeling and thought at the same time. And she's making peace with all of it at the same time. Like it's just, it's multiple levels. And I think, and also musically, I think it's just so gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I find the very last moments of it really moving and emotional. Mm -hmm. Like for me, maybe even more so than the Michael Cervis moment. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Because, I mean, it's it's about her more than it's about anyone else. Yeah. He is sort of the main figure 
in her story, but it is her story. Yeah. So, uh, this show, as I mentioned, opened in April of 2015. It was nominated for 12 Tony Awards, winning five, including Best Musical and Score. It was Janine Tesori's first win for a Tony Award. She had been nominated multiple times before this, which we've covered, but it was her first win. Finally, much deserved. Much deserved. Do you have any idea what else was uh, nominated that year? for score and musical oh my goodness okay so we were just talking about whether hamilton and fun home were the same year or not so hamilton came out at the public but it did not move to broadway until that july so yeah so they so it wasn't the hamilton year it was not the hamilton year if it was the hamilton year fun home would have been left in the dust Okay, I'm, I'm going to give up instantly. Tell me, what else was nominated? So, best Musical, it was up against An American in Paris, mm-hmm. Something Rotten, and The Visit. Okay. Um, I believe for score, because American Paris wasn't a new score, it was The Last Ship that was the other nominee for score. Okay. Uh, let me see, let me see, let me see. Yes, The Last Ship. Now- in my defense, which is actually just damning, I didn't see any of those. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you're familiar. You've heard of them. Those are titles that ring a bell. <laughs> yes. So something rotten. I remember a lot of people thought could be a late edition contender because so many people really loved how funny it was. It was original, and something rotten is very good. It's a good show. Although I saw it a second time a few months into the run, and I was like, oh, a lot of the jokes are mostly just like saying a show title, <laughs> like <laughs> like you know, oh chess, and everyone's like, ha 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 ha. We all know chess. And I'm like, that's not direct. Absolutely. Yeah, but like the second time, you're like, that's not really a joke. Um, the visit was weird. I enjoyed it, but like it was never gonna go anywhere. And then an American in Paris, I fully disliked. I love the movie despite the fact that it's a little boring. And I thought the show was visually really stunning, but I thought that it was also kind of a mess. And I remember that year, everyone I spoke to was like, I don't know. It, it could be something rotten. It could be, it could be an American in Paris. Something rotten has the potential to be really commercial and like tour the country really well. And, you know, an American in Paris is like so lush and lavish. And I remember saying to every person dead in the eyes, I said, Fun Home is the best musical of this season. And you cannot not award it. You mm-hmm. like, you cannot see it and then see the other three nominees and look me in the face and tell me that Fun Home doesn't deserve it. It's just objectively mm-hmm. true. And then it won all the top awards. They won musical, (laughs) director, book, score, and lead actor, which so good. good. And it's rare for a show to win those awards where it wins, you know, like uh, musical, both writing and directing, and then one for acting as well. Like Hamilton did it, obviously. Um, Band's Visit did it. But, you know, like uh, Dear Evan Hansen, they lost direction. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to think of other ones. Um, 
like kinky boots they didn't win book they didn't win direction uh mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of like the oscars where you know you win like picture director screenplay an actor and then an actress like it's it's a certain kind of quintuple win that's hard to achieve yeah, yeah. um like and it's so i think it speaks highly to the show that it did that especially when you know it's not the most commercial it was never going to run for five thousand years like they could not necessarily run a, a tony campaign off of like commercial hype alone that like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, making mm-hmm. national headlines and it's got lines around the block like it was selling well and people liked it but and it had the best reviews of the year but it wasn't like this is a phenomenon they're like no you you have to award us this because we are objectively the best of the year and like we have an all-female writing team and like Janine DeSori like it's her time she's written so many Tony worthy scores and this is like the most complete show she's written yet like give it to her uh, I believe they lost the Pulitzer though to Between Riverside and Crazy, which I saw at second stage and thought was fine. Uh, I would have given. Did they lose it to? Was what about Annie Baker's The Flick? Was that the Pulitzer, or was that something else that they lost to that? Oh, you might be right. It might have been The Flick. Um, hold on, one second. Pulitzer. Why did I think it was Between Riverside and Crazy? Uh, Pulitzer for drama. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. I only wow. knew that because of the material, the study materials you sent me. <laughs> Guys, Julia has just read me for filth, dragged I me on my own that. podcast, exposed <laughs> me to the world. Fun Home did lose the uh, the Pulitzer to the flick, which I never saw. Is that good? I like the flick. Is it worthy of the Pulitzer? Oh gosh, I'm certainly not one to say. <laughs> Oh, okay. I enjoyed it a lot. Okay. So it didn't. Oh, you want to know why I thought it was between Riverside and Crazy? Because between Riverside and Crazy won the Pulitzer the year Fun Home was on Broadway, but Fun Home was eligible okay. the year before. Now, okay. if, if Fun Home had been eligible the year it opened on Broadway with that production, with the tweak to it, maybe if they had cut Al for short earlier, would it have won the Pulitzer? Who's to say? <laughs> um, I should probably read the flick or see it. Plays are meant to be seen, not read. Um, okay, that's fine. All right, so a couple of questions here for you, Miss Julia. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you already kind of answered it before, uh, but the Tesori tune, what is your favorite song in this show? Yeah, I feel like, yeah. Tell, I'm going to stick with Telephone Wire. Gimme, gimme a revival, please. Who would you like to see in a production of Fun Home? And is there anything you would like to see done with it in a revival? Oh, gosh. I mean, I feel like we should just name check our great mutual friend, Caitlin Kinnanen, who I thought was so good in the Western production. I would love to see her in a revival. I'd love to see her do it again. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think I'm still curious about the in the round versus the proscenium thing. I think it'd be cool to see it with an entirely different staging just to see what that brings to it. Yeah. Bring back those panels, some projections again. Yeah, yeah. I thought they were so cool. They were really cool. No, they absolutely were cool. Again, it's it's and a I matter of they're necessarily distancing. Well, you're wrong. No, um, <laughs> I think it's sort of it's uh, you you get you gain a little, you lose a little with either, right? Like yeah. you know, there is there is that intimacy of in the round, and then again, the way that 
at least in that production with the round, how they were able to make everything sort of flow in and out like memories. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's also possible to do that on a, on a stage. I would like to see a revival that is similar to uh, the glass menagerie that Cherry Jones did. Did you see that production? I didn't know. Celia Keenan Bulger came out of a couch. <sighs> yeah. Um, I mean, that whole production truly embraced the fact that it was a memory play. The set by Bob Crowley was, you know, the apartment was on a, platform with a fire escape that went up into the sky everything ar- around it was black the the stage was um like a pool of water almost so it felt like you know a pool of memory memories yeah. like the corner of my mind uh so we like caitlin kinnan is there any 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 actors or actresses for the parents that would intrigue you hmm. you know i always when I, I love thinking about casting, but on this weird like micro level of like casting among the people that I like know personally and the friends I work with. And I'm, I don't think I have a great inspired casting for the parents. Who would you put, who would you want to see? So it's interesting because you have to kind of go one of two ways. Part of me wants to see John Cameron Mitchell as Bruce because <laughs> I think he would really hone in on the hyper intellectual kind of cold person and maybe with michael service you have that headwig connection but i also like the idea of someone extraordinarily charming that forces you to not get taken in by that charm which you know michael service had a little bit of that he had a lot of charm at the beginning that then really became creepy as the show went on you like started to see the cracks in the facade yeah i feel like this performance it was more like i observed him charming other people rather than he charmed me yeah so like not that i necessarily would want him to play the role but like a hugh jackman who has that who's like oozes charisma Mm -hmm. and then only and then just to see what that charisma is hiding i feel like would be really fascinating but yeah i'm trying to think of it of a singing actor today i mean how do you feel this is again this is just someone who i love so i want to see him and everything but like how do you feel about like a mono falciano Ooh, absolutely Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and also, I don't think he gets enough credit uh, for stuff. I, I, I would like to see him in more things prominently featured. You know. Agree. Yeah. Also, I mean, like a Norbert Leo Butts, who Mm -hmm. played actually a very similar role in How I Learned to Drive, where just someone who is so engaging and charming, but also is not afraid to kind of go for the jugular. I love that. Maybe it's because I just have never gotten over her in Violet, but I would love to see Sutton as Helen one day. I think she would be heartbreaking in that role, mm-hmm. um, especially now that she's starting to embrace her mix so she can start <laughs> mixing some of it, which I would love. Um, yeah, I'm tra- I don't know a ton of like young actors right now who I would want to see as like middle Al- medium Allison or small Allison. Kaylin, I'm sure, was absolutely fantastic. I would love to see her do it at some point again. Oh, you know what I would love to see? Speaking of Caitlin. Uh, Izzy Michaela from The Prom. I think okay. she would be an awesome medium, Allison. Okay. I think I put her down for one of the. Oh, I told. I said I thought I would like to see her Betty Draper from not Betty Draper. Her um Betty. Uh, God, what's her face from Sunset Boulevard? Is it is it Betty? No, it's not Betty Draper. No, that's uh, Mad Men. Yeah, Betty Draper is Mad Men. It's God. I already forgot her name. God damn it. Um, the, the ingenue in Sunset Boulevard that both Judy and Alice Ripley played. She's such a bland character, but I like, I want to see someone really cool and weird play that role and see what they can do with it. Schaefer, Betty Schaefer. That's her name. Ah. Betty goddamn Schaefer. Uh, anyway, raise me up. Do you think this show was properly appreciated when it came out? 
Yeah, I do. I think, again, I think it was almost surprisingly appreciated in that it, it did as well as it did. I mean, it didn't win the Pulitzer, but whatever, I guess, you know, I guess it was appreciated enough. Hmm. Five Tony Awards, recouping its investment in national sport, critical praise. I guess it was appreciated enough. You know, I agree with you. But that's something that I've asked on this series in regards to Janine's shows. Like when you read the reviews of Janine's shows when they come out at the first time, mm-hmm. you get a lot of critics, especially the Times, who are like, I guess. Um, huh. Yeah, like Ben and Brantley, he did not love Violet at the Playwrights. Granted, they made it better over time. Uh, he hated Millie. He was kind of appreciative but cold about Carolina Change the first time. He didn't really like Shrek very much. Fun Home is the first time a Janita Sori score came to him for like immediately. And he was like, Yes, this is a great show. I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. finally, you understand that Janine is amazing. <laughs> Good. And then last question Caroline it or change it? Is there <sighs> anything about this show that you'd want to alter? Oh, gosh. No, I don't think I'm going to think of something in the next five seconds that would actually make Fun Home better. I don't have any, I don't have any gripes that I've been sitting on with it. How about for you? No, I think it's perfect. As I said, <laughs> I was going to say, Julia, correct answer, but I don't want you to feel like you have to please me. Although you should, everyone should want to please me. But um, yeah, you know, I, 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 I stand by it, especially having sort of dived back into the show and research for this. I was reminded, I always have felt that the show was fantastic, even after, you know, being away from it for a while. But as I got through other Janine shows, like re- rediscovering Millie and like, oh, that's so much joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like Millie has its bumps. And I think Caroline is so brilliant, but I also think its weirdness makes it hard to sometimes put on stage. Like, I think Caroline can be really a victim of bad directors in a way that I think fun mm-hmm. home, even if your director is only mediocre, the show will still come through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think the show is so fantastically written. It's like, it's, it's well-structured, it's creative, it's inventive, it's emotional. And I think that it's okay for people not to like it, but I will judge them severely. <laughs> you know, do you have any shows like that where, or like movies like that, where it's like, you cannot like this, but if you don't like it, it tells me all I need to know about you. Hmm. I feel like I have some, like when I think about movies, I was just talking about this with someone the other day, the opposite where like, they're much maligned, but if you realize that it's great, like I do, then I respect you. Like I'm worth the thing of Jane Campion's In the Cut. I always loved that movie. Jane Campion's In the Cut. That's with Miss Ryan, is it not, Meg Ryan? Yeah, yeah. I've actually never seen it. It is like pulpy, but I think it's so like atmospheric and like, Mm. yeah, I was, I was super into it. And when I met other people who appreciated it, I was like, yeah, you get it. Yeah. Well, I think that's something about art that's so odd is like, as I said, you know, once you put it out there, you have no control over how people interpret it. So it's, it's always weird to me to read reviews for things that malign them for X, Y, Z. And I'm sitting there going like, did you not get that that was the point? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Je- like Jennifer's Body was one of those movies where while it is kind oh, of, yeah. Jennifer's Body is a that. bit of, yeah, it's a bit of a mess, but like, it's still so much fun. And every, when I read the reviews for it at the time, I'm like, how do these critics not get that? Like every, all the problems they have with it are like the point of the movie. Like, the, right, like, right. like, oh, it's so sensationalist. So I'm like, yeah, it's a commentary on that s- sensationalism and that, and, and uh, that sexualization of like, Megan Fox like that's the point of it yeah like I do think 
what were you, this is connecting to something in my head, but in the cut, I do wish that people when reacting to something, oh, it was when you're talking about authorial intent and how in a way, you know, there's, you have to sort of throw it out and the work is what it is, regardless of what the author meant it to be. Mm-hmm. But I do wish that more reviewers gave creators the benefit of the doubt that they sort of knew what they were doing and were trying to do something. Absolutely. Audiences too. I mean, not, not to uh, feel like an old Clint Eastwood man here, like get off my lawn kids. But sometimes I read social criticisms of works in a way where I'm like, do you not see that what you're objecting to is the point of this plotline? Like, especially when it comes to characters, you know, maybe saying or doing the wrong thing. I'm like, yeah, the point is that they learn from saying or doing that wrong thing. Um, Or that they didn't learn, but that you're going to think about it. Yeah, exactly. I'm just, this is only because I'm about to literally record this episode tomorrow and shows you sort of how scatterbrained this scheduling is for this podcast. I'm doing Millie tomorrow, which is, you know, I'm literally doing the first episode the day after I do the last episode after having done all the other ones in the middle, which is crazy. But reading the Times review for Thoroughly Modern Millie, like Ben Branley so missed the point of what the of what the team was going for with that show he's like it's just so earnest and bright he's like and they he's like and this scene is so cringeworthy because it's so ridiculous i'm like yeah it's meant to be like it's like the scene where i'll talk about it in the i talked about it at this point in the millie episode so everyone will already heard me talk about it but the scene when muzzy is the decoy at the end of act two i don't know how familiar you are with millie i'm not familiar with it Great. there's a kidnapping plot that's all i need to know and they use muzzy van hosmere who is you know in her mid 40s they bring her in undercover to pretend to be like a 20 year old girl they put her in this big blonde wig and it's cheryl lee ralph so she just looks ridiculous and ben brantley's like oh what an embarrassing sequence for miss ralph and i'm like it's a ridiculous sequence like that's the joke of it like how are you that up your own ass that you don't get it and aren't able to have fun with it? Like, so it's, you know, it's things like that. I'm like, are, how can you be the chief critic of the New York Times and not understand that the ridiculousness of that of that scene is what makes it so much fun? Uh, but at least he understood with fun home. <laughs> he, he finally, he finally jumped on the bandwagon for that, I should say, you know? Yes. Um, Julia, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a delight. Thank you for having me. And we've been talking, I think, for almost two hours at this point. Julia was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to cover very long on this episode with you. I was like, oh, sweetie, you do not know how I can coax you into talking for hours. <laughs> um, so before- It's a skill. I appreciate it. It is a skill. So I will quickly say, so I'm going to do a quick moment here where we're going to cut away to future Matt, who will tell everyone what my rankings are of the Janine DeSori Broadway musicals. I think everyone knows where Fun Home ranks, but where everything else ranks, you'll find out as I cut away right now. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow color. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. Thanks, past Matt. So let's get into it, everybody. The rankings of the five Janine Tesori Broadway musicals. Uh, we, this means we have Millie. Fun Home, Violet, Shrek, and Caroline or Change. We're not including Soft Power. We are not including Kimberly Akimbo. That we can uh, analyze in the next season when uh, Kimberly Akimbo officially makes it to Broadway. At number five, we have Shrek, which is quite fun with a very good score, but is not as fun 
as the following show and also i think is has i think it has some points taken away just from how much i dislike the netflix filming of it uh number four is thoroughly modern millie more fun than Shrek, it has its bumps, but you also have to give it props for how seamlessly the original songs are incorporated with the old songs. It's just, it's very well done. Like, if you don't know that score going in, it all sounds like one cohesive unit, and that is very impressive. Number three, and now we're getting into, like, the masterpiece section here. We have Violet, which is so wonderful, so moving. Charming and funny when you least expect it. Heartbreaking when you least expect it. Especially with all the edits now. It's a one act. It's just uh, dreams. We love it so much. Number two is one of the great masterpieces of theatrical storytelling in the 21st century. Caroline or Change. It is fantastic. It is weird. I understand why some people don't care for it. That said, I think it is a masterpiece. And number one, impenetrable. Perfect. Sorry, y'all. It's just objectively true. Fun Home, the greatest musical of this century so far. Now that I have your attention, I think this is a good moment to tell you what the next series is going to be for Broadway Breakdown. As I tend to do, I will be taking a short break between this series and the next because Papa does this thing alone. Papa is tired. I don't even like that I'm calling myself Papa. Mama's tired, y'all, okay? The next series is going to be called Underestimated, and it is about... Broadway shows that had a relatively short run and then found much greater success after the fact due to their cult followings. So there are some musicals you can probably think of right now that fit the bill, others uh, that might surprise you. So I'm going to try to get some plays in there too, that's always a little harder to accomplish as y'all know, but I'm going to see what I can do. Remember, this is Strictly Broadway. So no off-Broadway, no Heathers, guys, unless I really get, you know, bombarded on social media about it. But that is gonna never happen, so whatever. Uh, Yeah, and that's it. So I hope you've enjoyed the Tesori Hour, and you look forward to Underestimated. And now I'm gonna bring it back to Past Matt. Take it away, sexy. Thank you so much, Future Matt. You really sound like you're doing well and you're thriving. Congrats for you. Good for you, girl. Go get your zhuzh. Uh, Julia, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Gosh, I mean, I have a website, juliamindwell.com. I have a website with my wonderful writing partner, Gordon Leary, which is, I believe, gordonandjuliamusicals.com. Um, yeah, we have a production coming up this summer of our show, The Magnificent Seven, which is about the 1996 Women's Olympic Gymnastics Team. Speaking of suspending disbelief about not knowing the outcome, but still hoping the outcome happens. So, yeah. That's exciting. Um, yeah. Where is the, where's that happening? We're, I mean, somewhere in New York City. We're, so we're sort of nailing down our venue right now. Self-production is a whole, whole new world. It is true. I'm sorry, guys. I didn't realize I stepped on the landmine. Julia gave me the death glare when I said, where's it happening? She was like, um, how dare you? I didn't know I death glared. No, you don't. No. It's only, it's only, that's only funny to people if they can actually watch the Zoom right now. Julia has like the kindest of faces and has like been so sweet this entire time. So I just like I do to- think I have like resting friend face. You, you, you have resting I like you face, which is good because you cannot like someone on the inside and they'll have no idea. So on the inside, you'd be like, I got to get out of this conversation. I need to pretend I'm getting a phone call right now. And on the outside, it's like, that's such an interesting story. Tell me more. Um, <laughs> which is just a nice 
thing for people to have. I wish I had that. My face is always like, you're boring me. You're boring me right now. <laughs> that to be true of your face. Well, you haven't bored me yet. I haven't had any resting face with you. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Uh, do you have any social, Julia? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I guess on Twitter, I'm at Julia Eve. What are the other socials that people care about? I don't, I don't, I don't have a very strong social media presence. No Insta, no TikTok? I, no TikTok. I have an Insta. I don't know what my handle is. <laughs> when was the last time you were on it? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Gordon, who I write with, does all of our social media. Gordon, if you're hearing this, tweet out to everybody where they can find <laughs> Julia on social media. Please help us, Gordon. <laughs> Julia's like, you can uh, reach out to my representation. I don't know how to find me. Um, <laughs> If you want to follow me, I am on Instagram at Matt Koplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, you can follow it, subscribe, give us a nice five-star rating, give us some reviews. Who knows what reviews I've gotten since this series has come out. And you, as you heard from future Matt, you know what the next series is going to be. I'm not going to say because, well, I do know, I don't know what the title is yet. Future Matt knows the title. So here we go. Julia, we close out every episode with a nice Broadway diva. We've done Miss Kunzi. I think what I'd like to do is... Uh, have us play out with Miss Beth Malone, if that's all right Ooh, by you. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I don't think we've had Miss Malone yet. And she was so good. So, so Tony nominated for this role of adult Allison. I think it's nice to have her in there. Yeah, so I will have Beth play us out. Once again, you can find Julia on her website. Uh, reach out to Gordon if you want to find her anywhere else. Uh, keep your ears open or eyes peeled for Magnificent Seven and catch us in a few weeks when we get into the next series and that's it for now thanks so much guys for keeping up with Miss Tesori this has been the end of Tesori Hour take us away Beth bye and I may not serve I may not see France but I have to know I still have the chance and maybe I'll make a painful mistake it's my Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.